Okay, now the housekeeping stuff is over. Let's move on. We're in week two of our series called But What If I Fail? Now, uh, we're going to be looking at something that's kind of interesting to me, a little different. Um, but um, we're actually going to be in 2 Samuel 11. We're going to actually look at a pretty large portion of Scripture. Um, but really what I've, kind of what this is really about is, is, is the situation where David here has, has, as we talked about last week, has gone out, he's fought the giant, he's defeated the giant, he, he's done the thing that no one else would be willing to do. He, he wouldn't let the failure or the thought of failure keep him from doing what God's asked him to do. And so he's been successful. Where we find ourselves now in 2 Samuel is David has become king. He has united both, the, uh, both kingdoms of Israel under his rule and he's been in Jerusalem now. Um, he probably, when he was um, doing the whole Goliath thing, he's probably about 15 years old on average. Now he's probably in his, you know, 30s or 40s. We're not quite sure. But basically, this is where we're at. David has been king now for a while. And basically, kind of what we're going to be talking about today is this understanding of when the good guy fails. When the good guy messes up. And that's what we're going to be talking about. So I'm going to sit down because we're going to be talking a little bit about all this. And I'm going to read it with you. So in 2 Samuel 11... 1 through 17, it says this, In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Amnonites. They destroyed the Amnonite army and laid siege to the city of Rahab. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. As he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was, and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam, and the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after having her menstrual period. Then she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, Hey, guess what? I am pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army was getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, go on home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, What's the matter? Why didn't you go home last night after being away for so long? Uriah replied, The ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents, and Joab and my master's men are camping in open fields. How could I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. Well, stay here tonight, or today, David told him, and tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem that day and the next. Then David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. Again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is fiercest, then pull back so that he will be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy's soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed along with several other Israelite soldiers. And now we're in chapter 26. When Uriah's wife heard that her husband was dead, she mourned for him. When the period of mourning was over, David sent for her and brought her to the palace. And she became one of his wives. Then she gave birth to a son, but the Lord was displeased with what David 
had done. The great failure. Man, we love David. I love David. I love the stories of David. David did so many amazing, incredible things. And here it is, his biggest failure. His biggest mess up. Man, when, when the good guy becomes the bad guy, when the good guy does the thing that you just go, man, what are you doing? I don't know how many, I don't know if you've been this way, but like I've read this story and I'm like, dude, David, seriously, all the stuff you've done, all the Psalms you've written, all the amazing things. And then in this moment, man, he screws up and he screws up majorly. Majorly. I mean, we could go into all the stuff that he did in this passage of Scripture. But the problem is, and what we need to understand is David failed. And I want to learn from it. I want to look at it and go, David, man, what must have been going through your head? What must have been going through our lives? Because here's the thing. No matter how good we are, no matter how perfect we can can try to construct our lives, man, we're all broken people and we do broken things. David wasn't perfect, and he messed up, and he failed. This guy that that took down giants, this guy that became the greatest king Israel had ever seen, messed up. He failed. He failed. How did he fail? Well, we're going to look at this. We're going to look at how he failed, then we're going to look at how he responds to it. But first, let's look at this. Let's look at the trap of idleness. Let's go to the trap of idols. Look at 2 Samuel 11. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. It says this. In the spring of the year, when kings normally go out to war, David sent Joab and the Israel army to fight. However, let's jump down. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Okay. Now let's kind of start and let's kind of look at a few things. Now, because this kind of sounds weird because we don't understand it necessarily. Okay. In wintertime, the people that were normally fighting would take a break. Okay, it was too expensive. Uh, People would die because of lack of food and cold and all that sort of stuff. So they would basically take a truce. They would basically say, hey, we're going to stop fighting for the winter. And so in springtime, they would come back. This was normal. This was accepted. It was just kind of what they did. And so basically, this is what this is all about. David was was fighting these individuals. You can look back in, in chapter 10 to see kind of that war and all that's going on. And so David is supposed to be someplace else. He's not supposed to be in Jerusalem. He's not supposed to be there. He's supposed to be with the army. He's supposed to be leading them. He is the guy that's supposed to do that. And so instead of being out, being active, doing what his God-given role is, instead he's at home. He's doing nothing. He's idle. Okay, now listen, I don't know about you, I, I grew up in a, in a weird, strange, wonderful home. And one of the things that we did was we watched movies together. We didn't just watch movies together. And, and I, am, I, I just, you know, I don't know if you're going to think less of me for telling you this. But we watched musicals together. Don't laugh, that is, mm. Ah, yeah, 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 whatever. Mm, okay, now, so we watched musicals together. And one of my favorite musicals... Okay, y'all are going to never look at me the same again, are you? You know, is the music man. I love the music man. Now, if you don't know what the music man is about, I'm going to give you a very, very short synopsis of the music man. There's a con man, okay? And what he does, he goes into towns and he sells all the people, basically, that he's going to start this band with these kids. He's going to start a band, okay? And so he sells them all this stuff and then he runs away with their money, okay, basically. But he has to come up with a problem. He has to come up with a reason why the kids need to buy an instrument. And so he comes up with this unbelievable plan that basically centers around the fact that there's a pool table in town. Da-da-da-da. 
But it's also about idleness. He basically sings a song about, hey, listen, the kids don't have anything to do, so they're doing the bad thing. I want to give them something good to do. Idleness. Look at Proverbs. I love the way this says it in Proverbs. It says in Proverbs 16, 27, it says, Idle hands are the devil's workshop. Idle lips are his mouthpiece. Idleness. Sometimes people come up to me and they say, Aaron, how are you doing? I say, I'm, I'm busy. And they'll say, oh, really, you're busy? And I say, yeah, it keeps me out of trouble. You know what I found? Idleness can really be a big problem for people. It can be an issue because when we are idle, when we're not doing what God's asked us to do, we tend to kind of do the things that we're not supposed to do. We tend to kind of move in directions that we shouldn't do. Listen, we were, we were at a soccer game just yesterday with my son, and I heard some people talking, and they were talking about, oh, well, my son does this, and, and he's in soccer, and he does this. And the dad makes the comment, yeah, it's great. It keeps them busy so they're not doing other things they shouldn't be doing. This is a five-year-old. But we do that. Spiritually speaking, God has asked us to be a part and be moving and doing things like that because a lot of times when we're not actually out fighting the battle, our hands can kind of get a little idle. We kind of get a little bored. We kind of start to do things that probably aren't the best thing. Listen, I'll only speak for myself here, but I've seen it in others as well. But in myself, you know when I complain the most? You know when I have the problems the most? You know when I'm critical the most? When I'm idle. You see, it's really hard to be critical of others when you're in the middle of doing something. But it sure is easy when you're not in the middle of something. You see, David wasn't supposed to be in Jerusalem. He was supposed to be out with his men. And he chose to be home. He chose to be idle. He chose to do that. Listen, the enemy loves to get you comfortable. He loves to get you idle. He loves to do those things because it is only a matter of time before your idleness will turn into problems for people and for yourself. Here's the thing. Here's how this story could have been. If David had just been where he was supposed to be, if David had just been busy doing the thing that God had asked him to do, this this message would be extremely short. And everybody says, Amen. Sorry, you can take it up with David. But he was idle. Next, the trap of focusing on the wrong thing. Things. The trap of focusing on the wrong things. Look at 2 Samuel 11, 2b. It says this. It says, as he looked out over the city, he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone out to find out who she was. He was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uri the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her, and when she came to the palace, he slept with her. His focus was not where it needs to be. Now listen, there is, there is some things that you can control and there are certain things you cannot, okay? You can control what you focus in on. Does that make sense? Okay, there are times where things will happen. Okay. I remember when I was, in high, I was in college, and one of the things that was, was, and please don't make fun of me, but when we were in college, we had AOL. Okay, you remember this? We early, early part of the internet, of course, all the young kids are like, what's that? Um, and so basically, you would, you would get online through the phones, remember? Remember this? The most annoying. And then you have, welcome. 
you've got mail. Wasn't that wonderful? And so it was just in its infancy. And we had our, our little AOL thing. And so I remember this. It was, it was the funniest thing. Because, well, it was funny now. But basically, we would, we would be in our college dorm room, and we had the door open because we had a rule in Bible college that you could be on the Internet, but you had to have your door open. That's the way it was. And so my roommate had his computer, and he was on his computer, and, and he was doing something. I don't remember what he was doing. I was over on my, my bed reading or something, and he was over there. And all of a sudden, I hear this, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. And I'm like, what? what's going on? What's going on? And he's going, oh, no, and he's looking away, and he's doing one of these numbers. He's typing, he's shooting stuff in his mouth, and he doesn't know what to do. And I'm like, Joel, what's wrong? My roommate was saying, Joel. I'm like, Joel, what's wrong? I went over looking over the screen, and I'm like, oh, no, oh, no. And he's going, oh, no, oh, no. And we're like going, oh, no, we don't know what to do. And finally, he just reached down and just turned off the computer. <laughs> Something had popped up that wasn't good. And we were scared. We're like, oh, we're waiting for the, you know, we, we're waiting for the lightning bolt, you know? And we're like, oh, ah, ah. Listen, listen, listen. There are times where things are going to happen. You can't control it. But listen, you can control what you focus in on. Let's go back. David shouldn't have been there. I understand that. But David is on the roof. He's doing what he normally would do. It makes complete sense. He's walking out. He's doing a thing. Now, if David had done this, Oh, man, what a beautiful evening. What a, oh, okay. Uh, Let's go inside. Okay. But he doesn't. David lingers. David focuses. David pursues these things. You understand? Listen, sometimes things are going to happen. They are beyond your control. But what you can control, what David could control, was what he chose to focus in on. Okay, what he chose to focus in on. Listen, one of the things you need to understand about your pastor and about every human being that's ever walked on the face of the earth, there are so many wonderful, terrible imperfections in me. And you can choose to focus in on those things or you can choose to focus in on other things. And listen, if you choose to focus in on all the things that make me a horrible person, you and I probably are going to have some issues. Not because I'm going to get mad at you, because I'm not perfect, because I'm not going to do things that are right all the time. You choose what you focus in on. You choose how you focus in on them. David, in this situation, could have focused and gone a different direction, but he doesn't. He focuses on the wrong thing. Listen, let me ask you a simple question. What are you focused in on? Look at your life. Look at your heart. Look at the way you live your life. What is your focus Is it on the things that are lovely and good and true and beautiful? Or is it on other things that bring death, that bring hurt, that bring bitterness and anger? What are you focused in on next? After all this, he's, he's now, of course, he's messed up. He's, he should have been where he was at. He, he's focused on the wrong things. Now he's, he's slept with a, another man's wife. Now. He does what we typically tend to do when we are caught in sin is we get into the trap of the cover-up. The trap of the cover-up. Look at 2 Samuel 11. It says this, And David sent word to Joab, Send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army was getting along and how the war was progressing. Then he told Uriah, Go home and relax. David even sent him a gift, a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace. But Uriah didn't go home. 
he slept that night at the palace entrance with the palace guard. And let's jump now to verse number 14. So the next morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines with the batterers fiercest, then pull back so that he would be killed. So Joab assigned Uriah to a spot close to the city wall where he knew the enemy's strongest men were fighting. And when the enemy soldiers came out of the city to fight, Uriah the Hittite was killed, along with several other Israelite soldiers. So the cover-up began. The cover-up began. Isn't it strange that, that we as humans are, we really haven't learned much? Think back to the garden. Think back to the very first whoops, the very first sin, the very first mess up. When Adam and Eve realize they're naked, what do they do? They cover up. They try to cover up. The first thing they do is they go and they grab their leaves and they're, they're, they're making themselves a, a makeshift covering. That's what we do as humans. That's what David did. He, he knew he had done wrong. He knew that this was not a good situation. So what's he do? He brings back Uriah from the front lines. He's trying to cover it up. He, he basically says, hey, Uriah, good to see you, man. He's making this little small talk. And he's basically saying, hey, why don't you go on home? Hey, buddy, little nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Come on, go on home, see your wife, visit with her, you know, enjoy your little, little rest here. And Uriah doesn't do it. Now, here's what's interesting. Why does Uriah not do that? Okay? Why doesn't Uriah just go home? Because Uriah was an honorable man. And when these types of things were going on, when battles were being fought, basically men would abstain from certain things that they normally would do on a regular basis. They wouldn't eat certain foods. They wouldn't uh, enjoy um, their wives in, 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 in sexual relationships. And so basically, Uriah is being honorable. Uriah is doing the right thing. And so David's kind of getting a little frustrated here. He's like, why didn't you go home? Why did you? And, he, and basically, he explains it. Hey, listen. And we talked about it earlier in our, our text. He says, listen, I'm not going to do that while all the guys are out there fighting. I'm not going to do that. So David keeps him another day. Now David gets him drunk. He's doing all that he can. He's trying to get this to happen. Why? So that he can get it covered up. So that Bathsheba, when she has this baby, he can go, oh, isn't this awesome? Uriah and Bathsheba had a baby. He's covering it up. Well, he doesn't go. He refuses to do those things. So what's David do? David basically writes a letter. Has Uriah deliver his own death sentence? You talk about an honorable man. Uriah doesn't even open the letter. And David, I bet, doesn't even have to worry about it. Why? Because he's seen how honorable Uriah is. Later on in 2 Samuel, when David's mighty men are listed, do you know who's listed? Uriah the Hittite. These guys had a past. These guys had a relationship. This guy was with David when he was running from Saul. See, listen, that's what sin and the cover-up will do. It doesn't matter who it is, man. It doesn't matter what they've done. I've seen it time and time again. When we try to cover up our sin and we try to, to keep those things from getting out, it doesn't matter who we kill. And you go, well, I haven't, I haven't killed anybody. Yeah, that's true, but what have you done with your words? What have you done with your actions? It's the cover-up, and he's going to do anything. And what's interesting here is not only does Uriah die, 
but several other Israelite soldiers. Soldiers. He lets them become massacred to cover up his sin, his failure, the thing that he did that he shouldn't have done. It's devastating. I mean, this is the guy. This is the guy that that killed Goliath. This is the guy that did it all. This is the guy that God looked at and said, man, this guy is the apple of my eye. And he failed. And he failed miserably. So how does David respond to his greatest failure? Let's look at 2 Samuel 12. Now, this is a little bit after all this has happened, okay, as we've kind of concluded our text. And so now we're going to start in, in verse number 12. They think that they have, David thinks, I have, I've got the perfect crime. Nobody knows. Everything's safe. Everything's good. And then we come to verse 1 of verse, or chapter 12. It says this, so the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two men in a certain town. One was rich and one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb he had, brought, he had bought. He raised that little lamb and it grew up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate and drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man. But instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guests. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor man for the one he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, you are that man. The Lord, the God of Israel says, I anointed you king of Israel and saved you. From the power of Saul. I gave you your master's house and his wives and the kingdom of Israel and Judah. And check this out. Man, this is, this is you got to catch this. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. It's like God saying, dude, all you had to do was ask. I'd have given you more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and done this horrible deed? For you, check this out, you have murdered Uriah, the Hittite, with the sword of the Ammonites, and stolen his wife. From this time on, your family, uh, your family will live by the sword because you have despised me by taking Uriah's wife to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Because of what you have done, I will cause your own household to rebel against you. I will give your wives to another man before your very eyes, and he will go to bed with them in public view. You did it secretly, but I will make this happen to you openly in the sight of all Israel. And now we go to verse 13. I do believe. Oh, no, I stopped. Go ahead. That's good. Wow. I stopped at 12. You're, you're good. Wow. In one of the most poignant, one of the most amazing, and it sounds amazing, but it's negative in, in so many ways, moments in Scripture. Here's this king sitting on his throne in righteous indignation for this horrible story. Who is this guy? Oh, you just tell me who this guy is that stole this little lamb. And this prophet looks at him and says, you are the man. Wow. You want to talk about somebody just coming up and just hitting David across the eyes with a two-by-four. So what's David do? What do we do? 
okay? Because here's the thing we've got to understand. We're all going to mess up. We're all going to do the thing that we, we, we shouldn't do. We're all going to you know, do the thing that, 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 that brings dishonor to God and dishonor to us and dishonor to what we stand for. We've all done it. We're all probably going to do it again. David here is confronted with an unbelievable moment in his life. What is he going to do? He's got a choice to make. He's, he's at a crossroads. What's he going to do now? Well, let's see what he does. First, David repents. Immediately after the story, immediately after being confronted, in verse 13, it says this, Then David confessed to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. He immediately takes that. If you look at Psalms 51, we don't have time to go through it this morning, but if you look at Psalms 51, it's the song he wrote after he was confronted by Nathan for his sin. It's an unbelievable pouring out of emotion. It's an unbelievable moment where David basically says, God, forgive me. God created me a clean heart. God, do only what you can do. David just automatically goes, oh God, I messed up. I'm sorry. You know what? I wish that we could look at that and in my life and in our lives go, well, of course that would be what happens. Of course that would be his response. But do you realize how often that isn't our response? Do you realize how often we don't go that direction? Because listen, to admit repentance and to ask for repentance would have to indicate that we as individuals have done something that is in need of repenting from. But we don't always do that, do we? A lot of times we blame somebody else. A lot of times we go, well, it was this or it was that. Well, you know, if Bathsheba hadn't been out there bathing in the first place, I wouldn't be in this position. Listen, hear my heart on this. Because I do this too. And we are, we are awesome as human beings of making excuses. But you know what excuses really prevent? True repentance. Because to have true repentance, it means that we have to look at ourselves and go, you know what? I messed up. I did the wrong thing. Yeah, maybe there were people in places that helped me along, but when it all comes down to it, I chose to do this. We have a hard time with that. David understood that. David got that. And so his first response is just to repent. Next, and this is important, David accepts the consequences of his sin. David accepts it. Look, Look at 2 Samuel 12, 14. This is what happens, okay? So this is after David has said, I'm sorry, okay? You got to follow the, the path here, okay? David has said, man, I messed up. I'm in trouble. In verse 14, this is what Nathan says. Nevertheless, because you have shown utter contempt for the word of the Lord by doing this, your child will die. Your child will die. Basically, part of David's punishment is that the child is going to die. This child that he has had with Bathsheba is going to pass away. Can, can, can we talk about something for a second? Okay. A little heavy, but something we need to understand. Listen, because I think sometimes we forget this. We, we want to we forget this, I think, because, at least I do, because it can be so heavy, it can be so hard. Listen, our sin has consequences, and it doesn't just have consequences for us, it has consequences for others. It does. And in this situation, God says, listen, because of your sin, this child's going to die. But look what David does. He says, David begged God to spare the child. He went without food and laid all night on the bare ground. The elders of his household pleaded with him to get up and eat with them, but he refused. Then on the seventh day, 
the child died. Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, <clears throat> excuse me, changed his clothes, and he went to the tabernacle and worshiped the Lord. Listen, one of the things as a pastor that I take very seriously is trying to help you understand the reality of a world we live in. And scripture is pretty clear, okay? The wages of sin is death. Sin has consequences. Now remember, remember, the, remember the, the timeline here. David has said he's sorry. David has come before God and said, I have messed up. And, and even we see in, in the scripture, it says, we're God, okay, you're forgiven. You're forgiven. But there's still consequences. Listen, I have seen so many people that I love and care about have such a hard time because they think when I say I'm sorry, God's going to make everything else go away. And that's not how it works. There are still consequences to our sin. We still have to understand that those things are going to cost. There is a cause and effect that goes on. And that's hard sometimes. It's hard to accept that because we want to see God in this way that's basically, oh, but God, I said I'm sorry. How many times have we looked at our kids or even when we were kids and, and something has happened and they've done something they shouldn't do and they come up with those little eyes that just melt your heart and a little tear maybe drops down just at the right moment because they're all just amazingly awesome actors and they get the little tear and they say, I'm sorry. The lip comes out. The train can run across it. You know what I mean? And I remember as a kid, I would do that, and my mom would look at me, and she goes, I am so glad you're so sorry. But there's still a consequence. Still a consequence. I learned that very young. It's something that we need to teach our children. It's something that we need to understand from our father. Because here's the thing. The wages of sin was death. And Jesus is the one that paid the price. You get what I'm saying? If Jesus had to pay, we're going to have to pay sometimes too. But David doesn't allow that to keep him from understanding and moving forward. Because listen, after the child dies, what's David's response? He goes to the tabernacle and worships the Lord. Do you know how many people I've met that that'll happen and they'll pray, oh God, please don't let this happen. Oh God, please don't let this happen. God, please don't let this happen. God allows it to happen and then they get angry and bitter and angry at God. God, how could you do that? It's because there's consequences. There are consequences. But David doesn't allow that to make him bitter. He doesn't allow it to make him angry. He goes and he worships God. And the final thing, and this is important. David forgave himself. Look how the story ends. 2 Samuel 12, 24. After all this, I mean, we, we, we forget, and this is, this is kind of rude of us. In a lot of ways, we forget about the, the fact that Bathsheba here, she loses a child too. This is then David comforted Bathsheba, his wife, and slept with her. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and David named him Solomon. Listen, if I could bring this all to a close, if I could bring it all to a thing, we've got to understand something. This whole series is about our failure. 
and what we do with it and how we handle it and all these sort of things. And David, in this moment, he could have gone off. He could have sat back and go, God, I've messed up. God, I've screwed up. God, I'm no longer worthy. I'm no, it's like David becomes the, 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 the prodigal son in the story that Jesus tells. I'm not worthy to be your son anymore. I'm not worthy. And David, David doesn't do that. David forgives himself. David understands he's done wrong. He repents. He accepts the forgiveness of God. But one of the hardest things that we do as human beings sometimes is realizing that we also have to forgive ourselves. So many times I've had people sit in my office just weeping in tears. And they'll say, I know that God's forgiven me. I know that God, but, but do you know what I've done? Do you know what I've said? Do you know how I've hurt people? And I'm like, yeah, I do. And God forgives you. And it's like, they can't just, it just doesn't register. It's like they just can't get past it. They say, but you don't know what I've done. I've seen so many people miss out on so many things because they won't allow the forgiveness of God to register in their heart where they can then forgive themselves. It's so hard sometimes, I get that. But there's something amazing about God. There's something amazing about what God does and what God can do in our failures. And this is something I want you to catch and I want you to hold it. It's on the back page of your notes, but it says this. God loves to take our greatest failures and through repentance and his power, turn them into our greatest triumphs. Listen. This is one of those, and if you don't know me, you're going to get to, this is one of those like where I'm just like, God, you're so amazingly cool. God takes David's greatest failure. God takes his mess up. God takes the thing that you look at and you go, David, man, what were you thinking? And God does something amazing with it because David repents, because he understands the consequences, because he realizes that God has forgiven him. He can forgive himself. He goes, he takes the focus off of himself. He goes and sees Bathsheba, who is hurting as well. He comforts her. He loves her. He cares for her. And because of that, nine months later, something amazing is born. Solomon. Let me show you how amazing this was. Look at Matthew. In Matthew 1, this is what I affectionately call the begots section of the Bible. Because when I was a kid and I had a, a King James Version, it would say, uh, somebody begot, somebody begot, somebody begot. Basically it means that person had this baby. So this is what it says. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus, the Messiah, the descendants of David and of Abraham. We're going to jump down now to the verse number 6. Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. You want to know how absolutely incredible our God is? God took the lust and the murder and the cover-up and the sin of one of his greatest followers. And because David responded in the right way, Solomon was born, which eventually led to Jesus. 
I've met so many people and they sit there and they say, Aaron, I can't be used by God. Aaron, I failed too much. Aaron, I've done too many bad things. God can't use me. God won't use me. God won't allow it. Listen, God takes all things and works all things for the good. All things, if you'll let him. You have to understand, you can't look at this and go, but Aaron, I failed. I can't, I can't, I can't. Listen, God says, you can with my help. God says, with my, your repentance and my power, I can come in and I can take a situation that looks so desperately bad and looks so horrible and looks so, just, oh my goodness, David, how could you? And turn it into the Messiah. Turn it into the bloodline. Turn it into how Jesus got here. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've gone through, there is nothing so bad and so horrible that our Father doesn't want to reach down, put his arms around you and say, Son, my daughter, I love you. I've forgiven you. Yeah, I know you failed. I knew you were going to fail from the beginning of time. But if you'll let me, Just watch what I'll do. And God wants to do amazing things in our brokenness. God wants to do amazing things through our failures and our hurts. If the worship team wants to come up, we're going to close. But Aaron, what if I failed? What if I already have? What if, what if, will God still want to use me? Absolutely. I mean, you think about this. You think about the fact that here we are thousands of years later. And God is still using David's mess up to teach us and help us learn. How many messages have we heard? How many people's lives have been changed because David responded in the way that he did? Listen, David could have let that sin wreck him. He could have let it ruin everything. And you know what? There were still consequences. Everything changed at that moment. You begin to look at the scripture. You look at the rest of David's life. And it was hard. It wasn't like the first part. There was still a consequence. But you know what? David didn't allow it to end it. Hear me. Hear me. And understand this. For some of us, there has been some stuff that has happened. And we've allowed that to keep us from allowing, check us out, from allowing God to birth new things in us and through us. We've decided that, God, because I've sinned, I won't go comfort somebody else. I won't go to Bathsheba. I won't go because, because I failed and I've messed up. And God, you can't use me. Because of that, I truly believe in the lives of so many people, there has been so many Solomons that have not been born because we've allowed our failure to keep us from allowing new things to be birthed in us. And I think it needs to stop. You failed. I failed. You all failed. We all failed. How do we respond to it? Because I promise you this, your failure has not disqualified you for service. Your failure has not, God hasn't looked at you and said, you know what? You messed up, you screwed up, you're no longer my son, you're no longer my daughter. 
in one of the most beautiful pictures that we've ever had from Jesus. We have this picture of a father running out to embrace the son who's messed up and made a mess out of everything. Listen, hear me. Don't stay in the pig pen any longer. You weren't created for the pig pen. Come home. Come home. But Aaron, I failed. Yeah, I know. I know. I know. God knows too. And he wants to love you through it and help you in it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you right now and we need you. God, sometimes we fail. Sometimes we don't do the right thing. And God, in that moment, we we, we tend to handle the the smaller stuff that we think is smaller and we're okay a little bit, but but it's that bigger stuff. We, We do some things that are bigger. And we think because I did this or I did that or I messed up here or I messed up there, that God, you won't use us or that, God, you don't want us, or that, God, heaven forbid, you don't love us. And all of those things are lies from the literal pit of hell. It's hard, God, when the good guy does a bad thing. It's hard when the white hat guy takes it off and puts on the black hat, but we've all done it. And, Father, I truly believe there are individuals here today that something's happened. I don't know what it is. I don't need to know. Maybe happened yesterday. Maybe happened 38 years ago. I don't know. But because of it, they've allowed that to become something that separated them from you. They've allowed that to be that failure is just so big and such a mess up that they, they just say, God, how could you even love me? Hey, God, right now I pray that you would just dump your love on them. God, I pray right now that you would just overwhelm them with your love and your grace and your goodness. The Father, that they would understand that, yeah, that was a mess up. And yeah, there may be consequences, but you still love them. You still have a plan and that you want to take their greatest failure and turn it into their greatest triumph. You want to take that thing that has just been a hindrance to them and instead let it be something that just changes not only them and their family, but people, the other people they come in contact with. You want to make them new. And so, Father, right now, we come to you and we say we need you. We come to you right now and say, God, do what only you can do deep in our hearts because we failed. We've messed up. Like David, we come and we repent. We accept your plan. And we forgive ourselves because you forgave us. So, Father, right now, I pray that your Holy Spirit would just begin to work. Just begin to deep, go deep into those wounds and those hurts, that past and that failure. And just begin to clean it out. Just begin to minister there. Pour in the oil and the wine. And just let that just become a cleaning thing. Just let that become a a healing thing. Just let it just, just bubble up, Father. Because no matter what we've done, no matter what we've done, you can make it beautiful. No matter how ugly we think it is, you take the ugly things of our lives 
man, you turn it into something beautiful. Will you do that right now for all of us? So that we can be where we need to be. Help us, Father. Let's all stand.